0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leschetizky as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. CHAPTER Eleven. If Leschetizky had set the seal of his approval on a pupil, either as pianist or teacher, he did everything in his power to make that career a success. He never pretended that the road to success was simple or easy. On the contrary, he pointed out and emphasized the difficulties. When accompanying a concerto, he himself often played as a poor orchestra would accompany. Then he would add, But your orchestra may be a good one. Then it would play this way, and you must be prepared for their good playing. It is a sadly noticeable thing when the orchestra plays better than the soloist. He often referred to experiences of his own with orchestras. One director said to him, "'Excuse me, Mr. Leszczycki, we have played that concerto a dozen times this year, and have never before taken such a tempo as this.' "'Am I your soloist or not?' asked he. "'Where I have this melody, you are my accompanist.' In another place, he held the pedal over two different harmonies, which gave rise to controversy. "'If surprises upset you,' said Leszczycki, "'it's far better for you to be surprised in this rehearsal than at the concert.' On another occasion, his rehearsal was scheduled for five minutes past ten. "'You are thinking of beginning on the minute?' asked Leszczycki. "'We are supposed to do it,' was the answer." Well, let me have a seat near the piano then, replied Leschetizky, so that I can turn handspring to the piano stool, for that first tone of mine will take at least half a minute to prepare, if I do it well. He used to talk of Liszt's manner of going to the piano at his concerts. His appearance was electric, and his walk toward the piano, seating himself at the keyboard, and the first chord seemed simultaneous. However, when his improvisation was over, he brought about a very dramatic silence before the piece began. His stories of the real and doubtful successes of Rubinstein, Winovsky, and others, as well as of their behavior behind the scenes, were most interesting and instructive. Vienna was not lacking in interesting episodes, and Leszczycki often witnessed them A pupil was playing in a concert, with a famous singer of the opera there, and also a violinist. When the time came for the pianist, the famous singer preferred to sing herself, and intimated this to her accompanist. "'You have the best place on the programme, madame,' said Mr. Gutmann, the impresario, "'and it is the number now for the pianist.' "'No matter,' said the singer. "'I am going to sing now.' The accompanist took the singer, Mr. Gutman took the pianist. Whether it was to be playing or singing seemed to depend upon who would be the first to reach the stage door of the platform. As it was, the pianist was sent out to the platform with a shove that nearly upset her. After the next number, which the famous singer had, there were naturally profuse apologies for bad behaviour. Mr. Gutmann was the important impresario of Vienna, and all the concerts of the Musikverein Saal and Busendorfer Saal were under his management. He had connections with all the foreign managements as well, and was nearly always present behind the scenes himself. He was very kind and encouraging and generally made a short set speech as one was about to leave the artist's room for the stage. He was a very busy man indeed. But his heart and soul were in music and in the fulfillment of successful concert appearances of artists. He had many trials and tribulations, for the Viennese public was a difficult and somewhat capricious one. The real Viennese concert public, which made up the philharmonic audiences, could probably not be duplicated by any other audience in the world for its artistic and musical intelligence. They upheld their own opinions against the whole world and had no consideration whatsoever for advertisement. Advertisement implanted a suspicion in their minds and rather kept them away from concerts. There had been one supreme critic in Vienna who had never failed in directing the public mind with honesty and without prejudice. They believed he preserved the best traditions and was also sufficiently progressive. This was Edward Hanslick, who said that one should not take music as one swallowed a glass of champagne, for the sake of thrills and sensations. The Viennese public certainly did not go to hear music in this spirit. They went with keen intelligence, making subtle comparisons and, above all, knowing and understanding the music that was played. If they delighted in tradition and good form and beauty of appearance— Their innate humor and intelligence saved them from ever becoming narrow-minded. They were on their feet with enthusiasm for any unusually good performance, as well as for any really significant departure from old forms. They had courage enough to express themselves, even with hisses, when there was any fault or lack of taste in a performance, great or small. For concerts by artists of great distinction, the Viennese made themselves resplendent. Putti could never have been greeted by a more enthusiastic or distinguished audience than in Vienna in the Musikverein when she came there in her old age. All was well that evening for Mr. Gutmann, not so at another time when Sybil Sanderson failed to arrive in Vienna from St. Petersburg. She had made a mistake in the train schedule. Mr. Gutman came before the brilliant audience to explain this. The audience expressed its understanding of the cause of its long waiting for the artist to appear by rising good-naturedly. They were told that Miss Sanderson would, however, arrive at midnight and would sing the following evening. The next evening, the same brilliant audience assembled with great expectancy and warmth of feeling. When Miss Sanderson appeared, she did not bow, but stood quietly, very beautiful and imposing. After a second's silence, the audience burst into rapturous applause, but waited and waited for the first tone. A few notes were sung, then she stopped and said to the audience, Je ne puis pas. This was in bad taste toward the indulgent Viennese. Of course, Mr. Gutmann could not explain this, and the hall resounded with hisses. At another time, the music for Ein resounded with laughter for at least ten minutes. Two famous singers appeared on the programme. One had been a favourite for four years, the other was making his first appearance. The new one came first and pleased the audience greatly. When the favourite appeared, she must have imagined there was less applause for herself than usual, for her bad grace on leaving the stage was apparent. The audience seemed to understand this rather as a reprimand to them, for when her turn came again after the new singer, they did not fail in tremendous applause, though somewhat calculated and perfunctory. The singer's eyes filled with tears. Tears rolled down her face as she called out to the audience, "'You can have the other singer all you want. I'll not come any more.' At this the audience burst into prolonged laughter. "'No, indeed you shall not come again,' said poor Mr. Goodman, who was standing at the stage door. When Leschetizky heard of this, his only comment was, "'If one of my pupils ever behaves like that, he need never come to see me again.' In one way Leschetizky was an autocrat. He demanded that his pupils confer with him before accepting engagements while they were inexperienced as public performers. I saw him many times positively angry when pupils accepted engagements that were either too important or too trivial to suit their capacities as artists. I had had a very unpleasant experience with the patient Mr. Gutmann on this account. One evening, at the Musikverein He spoke to me from his box and asked me to play the piano part of a new sonata for violin and piano. It was to have its first public performance there, and I should have to undertake to play it in a few days. I had no time to confer with Leschetizky, and it did not occur to me to do so, but I asked him to hear me play it several days later and the day appointed for my lesson was the same as that fixed for the rehearsal with Dr. Prill, the concertmeister of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. I noticed Leschetizky's bad mood the instant he greeted me, and in a few minutes his temper rose to the point of forbidding me to play in the concert. It was within two hours' time of the rehearsal. "'You have not been well lately,' he said." "'You have just come back to Vienna "'and are not in a condition to play now. "'Besides, this is no sort of first public appearance for you, "'accompanying a violin sonata?' "'All this I knew to be true, but I answered, "'I know, but I must play. "'Think how angry everyone will be with me "'if I give up two days before the concert.' "'Unmoved, Leschetizky repeated "'that he did not wish me to play. "'There was no appeal.' but I persisted. It would look so unreasonable if at this late hour I refused to play, I argued. Tell Mr. Gutman and Dr. Prill and the composer that I forbid you to play, was the answer. Again I demurred. The retort was final. Well, you will have to choose between Mr. Gutman and me. I could only answer that of course there was no choice. The interview that morning with Mr. Gutmann and Dr. Prill was too distressing to describe. In a crushing manner, Mr. Gutmann dismissed me. I was a musical outcast. Very well, Miss Newcomb," he said, "I shall see that you never appear in concert in Vienna again. But autocratic as Leschetizky was, he was only interested in pupils who intended to play in public, and to this end he always bent his energies. One evening he came to see me. He sat down and did not speak for some time. Then the conversation began with a hint that he always lost interest in pupils who did not prepare themselves for concerts. It is very wrong, he remarked, to sit down in Vienna and study without ambition. He could not understand it at all. Do you think I can play now? I asked him. Well, you belittle the criticism of the classes if you think you can't. You've been playing there for several years, and we do not play badly there. We don't allow it. I don't allow it, he said. You will not have to play better anywhere in the world than you have to play there. But you must always improve, he added. I replied that I would go in the morning to Mr. Gutman and ask him to let me assist at one of the concerts at the same moment it occurred to me that this might not be so easy to arrange i promised leschetitzky that i would not put it off a day the next morning as i waited my turn with several others at mr gutmann's office i met madame frances seville coming out she had been to see mr gutmann in connection with her farewell concert in vienna she was greatly surprised to find me there "'and my surprise was of a different kind when she told me "'that she had decided to ask me to play in her concert "'and had already told Mr. Goodman so. "'He had not approved,' she said, "'and she had not understood this, "'but after she insisted for some time, "'the question had been settled. "'Her concert was to be with the Philharmonic Orchestra, "'and I might play any concerto I liked.' Madame Seville had just resigned from the Vienna Opera after singing there with great success for several years. She and Mahler did not agree, and she preferred to leave. She was a great singer and a beautiful woman, and the Viennese admired her exceedingly. She used to sing the three characters of the Tales of Hoffmann, something which was rather a tour de force, but her clear voice remained beautiful to the end of the long opera and she was always cheered to the last person in the audience. I flew with this news to Leschetizky, who was delighted and agreed that I had had a great piece of luck. He spoke of concertos. When I told him my choice of the Schumann A minor, he took the announcement very seriously and thought a long time before answering. It was a very dangerous thing to attempt for a first performance, he told me. If you should play it badly, everyone will say that you have attempted much too serious a piece for the first performance. If you play it very well, they will enjoy the music and may not appreciate your artistic playing. Why not play something more brilliant, the effect of which does not depend on your artistic powers and concentration of mind and feeling? The Hungarian fantasy, for instance? I had once felt that Leszczycki had made a different person of me, and that I had grown ambitious to play in public, as I did indeed wish to please him. So, after further discussion, I determined upon the Schumann Concerto, and determined also to stake my whole career on that concert. If I played it as an artist should play, I would go on. If not, I would give up all thought of a professional career as pianist and teacher, From that time until the concert, about two weeks later, not a day passed, but Leszczycki sent for me to go over the concerto. One evening I played it in the class, and I shall never forget the warmth of the reception I got from the students. Their loyalty to any pupil whom Leszczycki thought ready for a public appearance was absolute, and their affectionate appreciation of my playing that evening is a beautiful memory. As the day of the concert approached, Leschetizky seemed to think of every detail. His desire to have me play well and his foresight saved me many embarrassments and awkward positions which I should surely have got myself into, ignorant as I was of the purely practical details of a professional career. Leschetizky had great patience the first time with lack of attention to details, but never a second— and his thoughtfulness in looking after everything before that first concert made me so ashamed that I determined to profit by the experience. The rehearsal was set for the day previous to the concert. At ten o'clock in the morning, a servant came from Mr. Gutmann for the orchestral parts and the score, which, of course, I could not give him, as I did not even know it was customary for the soloist to supply them just as I was apologizing to the man, Leschetizky's servant appeared, laden with scores and orchestral parts which his master had provided. Afterward he told me that he had awakened in the night and remembered that I had most probably not attended to the scores. My sense of triumph over Mr. Gutmann wavered when I caught a gleam of disdainful amusement in his servant's eye, he was well aware that I was a novice, I am certain, and must have reported, in his pompous manner, the whole occurrence to Mr. Gutmann. When I arrived at the hall for rehearsal, Leschetizky was already there. In fact, he had been there for some time, having put off all lessons for the day. As I came in, he was absorbed in examining the planks of the platform, remembering a performance of his own, when part of the floor had given way. My master was not to rescue me from broken timbers that day, but he did come to my aid in a moment of another kind of danger. We had reached the last movement of the concerto, and the place where the theme is brought in by the oboes. The conductor failed to give the oboes their entrance, and I, ignorant of orchestral etiquette, stopped and waited for him to repeat the part he rapped on the desk, and, turning to me, remarked that I had failed to come in. At this point, Leschetizky came hurriedly toward the stage, protesting, Oh, no, Herr Director! the Fräulein has such a good ear that she could not play that part if you omitted the melody to which she responds. The director smiled, signalled to repeat the part, and brought in the oboes. After the rehearsal, we went to lunch. The first thing Leszczycki said was, Of course I said that to save you. I was not going to have all those musicians think that you did not know enough to come in, but regardless of whether the oboes played or not, you should have gone on playing that part yourself in place of the orchestra, which you may have to do tomorrow night. I hope you have learned that part. The rehearsal has taught me something too. In the future, I shall try to make mistakes like that myself. That is the one point in preparation which we omitted. That night at Leschetizky's house, we played the concerto nearly the whole night long. A dozen times I begged him to let me go, but he only sent for more tea, insisting that I repeat certain passages, and then not play them again, but only think them over until the concert. On the evening of the concert, I found Leschetizky in the artist's room waiting for me. I remember that I wore a very pretty soft white chiffon frock. Madame Seville was magnificent in a different kind of dress. Leschetizky took in every detail of my gown and coiffure, said he thought my hair too far over my eyes, and laughingly remarked that he did not admire long-haired affectations. Without further comment he took a penknife from his pocket and cut off some small fluffy things from my sleeves so that they could not possibly get in my way when I played he very graciously expressed a regret for mutilating my beautiful dress in honour of madame seville's farewell a brilliant and distinguished audience had assembled leschatitzky in the meantime went out into the hall and returned in about ten minutes, his face red and excited, saying that he had been up to the top seat in the gallery and had watched the house filling up and that I must change the whole level of tone of that concerto to suit the acoustics of the house when filled. There was a piano in one of the side rooms and he insisted that until my turn came to play we should practice playing the first phrase until I could play it with different tone, one that would be more penetrating. The quality which I had been accustomed to using in Leszczycki's rooms, and in the empty hall the day before, was not adequate for that packed house. So we went into the side room, and until time for me to go upon the stage, we practiced many phrases of the concerto with different tone, different touch, and slower tempos. Leschetizky did not appear in the concert hall until I was safely into the cadenza of the first movement. He then took his seat in one of the boxes, as if he had just arrived, and remarked quite casually to someone nearby that it was interesting to see an American playing with the Philharmonic in the Musikvereinsaal in Vienna. Madame Saville's audience gave me great applause, and the critics were generously disposed so that Leschetizky told me afterward that he had no fears now for my whole career. The first thing he thought of was that I should go again to Mr. Gutmann, who would surely now receive me differently, and arrange for a recital in the autumn. I promptly obeyed him the next morning, and, assuming now the virtue of a desire to play in public, I soon found myself doing it a great deal, to his real delight, Wherever I played, I found a laurel wreath sent me by my master. At my recitals I was happy to receive many laurel wreaths, big and small, as is customary in Europe, but invariably a small one was there from Leschetizky. He sometimes hid himself behind the little doors of the artist's room in Vienna until I had come off the stage after the first number. Then he would emerge... "'either pleased or critical, "'and not allow me to speak of anything "'but the playing of the next numbers. "'You've got a fugue coming now. "'Good gracious,' he would say. "'I am glad I haven't to play it myself. "'Be serene if you can, "'and do not let that lady sitting on the front seat "'confuse you by her whispers about the buckles on your shoes, "'as I heard her whispering way back here. "'How could you hear it?' I asked him. "'There is a crack in the door behind the stage, and I watched her through it,' he said. "'After my concert with orchestra the next day, Leschetizky came in to see me, about tea time. "'He asked me what I had been doing. "'When I told him I had been practising all day, he was quite beside himself with delight. "'I've won a wager then,' he said. "'I knew that you would study well after that,' he said gleefully.' I know exactly what would have happened if you had not played well and had not succeeded. I should have had to do this all over again, or you would have gone home or stayed here quite happily, enjoying yourself in Vienna. Everything is worth doing well or not at all, and if you are going to play, you must put yourself before the critics and great audiences. You will approach our next concert in an entirely different frame of mind. There is nothing so beneficial for some people as a success, he added. And now I am hoping that you will play because you love to play, and not entirely to please me, he said in his inimitable way. Sometime during the following months, I gave my first recital in the Saal. His prophecy was correct, I had grown very fond of the memory of my first successful concert, and, if indeed my casual mood for the piano had disappeared forever, a great amount of nervousness had taken its place, and I was more than ever glad of the opportunity of trying my programs before the critical but friendly class that met every fortnight at the master's house. It was the class that it was difficult for me to play before, and not Leszczycki. I could always play better when he was near. My mother was with me when I gave my first recital in Vienna, and when she saw me in such a state of nervous apprehension as we drove to the Bosendorfer Saal, she begged me never to play in public again. Leschetizky teased her a little afterward for her motherly solicitude. Yes, she said to him, we mothers must be a great trial to you when we come with our daughters to Vienna. I am sure you would approve of it if I gathered all the mothers together on a ship and we sailed for the South Sea Islands. Yes, gather them all together and put them on a ship, was the amused response. But stay here yourself. You are the real concert mother with the concert left out.